Well, how about we get started? Welcome to all of you. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Kyle Tomlin. I am an Episcopal priest in, uh, from Fredericksburg, Virginia. I serve at a small church there. Um, uh, more importantly, I also work as a little side gig as one of the co-hosts of a podcast called God in Comics. Uh, we've been doing this for about five seasons right now. And um, this podcast involves me and uh, two other uh, priests. One is a Roman Catholic priest now. He began as an Episcopal priest, but he's since changed over to a Roman Catholic priest. And another Anglo-Catholic priest, and I'm the Lutheran Episcopalian that's in the, in the mix with everyone. Um, I have been collecting comic books for a very long time, and this is sort of uh, you know, what ultimately led to me getting involved in God and Comics and doing this podcast. Uh, I have been collecting comics for 40 years. My mom started reading comics to me when I was four years old, and uh, I still have the comics that she read to me when I was four years old, and that began my collection, and, and it's just been slowly growing and continues to slowly grow. Um, we have had to purchase bed risers to put all of the long boxes of comics that I have under both <laughs> the bed that my wife and I share and under the guest bed that we have as well. Um, I was fortunate in my last calling to live in a parsonage that had a third floor, and the third floor had its own room that was my comic book room. But when we moved and purchased our own home, I ran out of luck, and we had to make things work. So I've been a longtime comic book reader. Uh, I, as I said, I do this podcast called God and Comics, and the premise of God and Comics in general is to uh, just sit down and talk a little bit about comic books and the place where we see uh, the Christian faith intersecting with comic books. And that's a little bit of what I'm going to do with you here today, is to talk about what we can see in comic books about the human condition and, and, um, and how Christianity provides some answers to the things that we see coming through the medium of comic books. I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, first of all, I do want to thank David uh, and the Mockingbird staff for inviting me to do this. It's a real honor. Um, I want to say that this is a very weird experience for me because my 15-year-old self, which is really myself, um, finds it very strange to be talking about comic books in a public forum. When I grew up, comic books, when you reached about the age of 15 or so, comic books became very passe. Um, they were always thought to be the things that were for kids. And, you know, once you started to transition into the time of dating and being interested in girls, well, now it's time to put all that stuff away and no longer pay any more attention to it. Um, well, I, I became interested in girls and I moved into that phase of life, but I continued to live the comic book life in secret. And so I'll never forget that when I was 15 years old, I, um, I was in Latin class. And my Latin class was rather small, consisted of about four or five students in addition to me. And I went into my local comic shop, which at the time was nothing more than a mailing center. Uh, the gentleman had purchased comic books and was selling them through this mailing center. And, um, and I ran into one of my fellow classmates when I went in the store to purchase my comics for that week. And we both had this knowing exchange of we've been outed. You know, here we were, 15 years old, not supposed to be liking this stuff anymore, and we do. Um, we didn't really say much to each other that day, nor did we say much to each other after that. But, um, but we were part of a secret club, I guess, from here on out. So all this is to say that even today, for me, at 43 years old, talking in public about comic books as though they're, they're a cool thing is a little bit strange. 
But as you probably can all testify, comic books have had, a, have had something of an explosion in the last you know, 10 to 20 years, perhaps. Um, certainly, with all of the movies that have come out in recent times about comic books, people have started to find a lot more interest in them. Um, Marvel has been doing wonderful things with their movies, and um, I'm eagerly looking forward to seeing the new Avengers movie, which I haven't seen, and don't spoil it for me if you have seen it. Um, but, you know, this has drawn a new crowd of people who have found comic books to be accessible, who have who've found comic books to be interesting. Um, one of the things that's absolutely true with the medium of comic books today is that they're not for kids anymore. Um, when I grew up, the stories were definitely more geared towards children, but they were making their way out of that realm even at that time. Um, there are now kids' lines of comics, and then there's regular comics. And the regular comics have become a lot more adult-oriented. Um, they deal with real themes and dark things. They, they try to look at the human condition. Um, and I think that, that you know, this makes it a ripe field for us to talk about and to explore. So, um, so you know, why this explosion? Why has this happened and why have people found themselves in this place? Well, at the beginning of a, a collection known as Kingdom Come, which I'll talk a little bit more about soon, there's a quote in the foreword by author Elliot S. Magan who says this, Superhero stories, whether their vehicle is through comic books or otherwise, are today the most coherent manifestation of the popular unconscious. Their stories not about gods, but about the way humans wish themselves to be, ought, in fact, to be. I think that's a pretty powerful quote that he puts down there, a pretty powerful statement to say that these are actually manifestations of our unconscious, manifestations of our longings, our desires, what it is that we experience in life and what it is that we're looking for in life. I would probably push the quote a little bit to say that I think that they're not only about the way we wish ourselves to be, um, but also they're manifestations of who we are and at the same time of who we think we are and also what we're ultimately longing for. I think this is what comes through the comic book medium. Not only what we ought to be, but who we are, who we think we are, and also what we're ultimately longing for. So with that said, what I'd like to do here today is take a look at some comic book characters. Now I have to tell you right up front, I'm trying to keep this pretty basic because I'm not assuming that you all are very well read in comic books and I don't want to go down obscure rabbit holes and, and talk about very far out stuff. So I'm keeping it close to the bone here. We're going to talk about stuff that most everybody knows about. I also have to apologize if I don't touch on your particular hero of interest. I can only do so much in the time allotted and uh, selfishly I've chosen things that are very important to me and things that I hold very dear to talk about only to wet your whistle as it were and maybe get you a little bit sparked in looking at these things. I will also tell you that these are going to be quite DC Comics heavy. Please don't throw tomatoes and cabbages at me or anything else if you've brought that stuff with you. Um, I do love Marvel. I think Marvel has done wonderful things with the movies and I am going to touch on some Marvel characters. Um, but my own particular bent in comic books, at least, not necessarily the movies, 
But comic books, at least, has definitely been DC Comics. I've been strongly influenced by them, and the bulk of comics that I even still read today are still um, from the DC realm. So I have to issue all those little uh, warnings there ahead of time. So we're going to dig into these characters a little bit. And I'm going to give you a little bit of the story of the character. And then we're going to look at what these characters are maybe expressing, what we're hearing through who these characters present themselves as. Um, the first one that I want to tackle today, uh, and I think it's only fair, is really the very first superhero that there is. And that is Superman, right? In 1938, um, two Jewish kids, Siegel and Schuster from Ohio, created this character that has gone on to sort of become the defining icon of what superheroes are, this man that we've all come to know and love, known as Superman. Um, what is the story of Superman? Well, uh, Superman is from the planet Krypton. He's an alien, not an earthling. Um, at a particular point in time, following the more traditional rendering of his origin story, uh, his planet, Krypton, was threatened. And his father, Jor-El, being a leading scientist and sort of uh, um, a voice against the establishment, uh, starts to warn the population that big trouble is coming to the planet. And so something needs to be done about this, or else the planet's going to end up catechismically exploding. Well, lo and behold, that is what happens. Everybody pushes Jor-El off as a kook, uh, says that he shouldn't be listened to. And, um, and Jor-El, in one last-ditch effort to save his child, Kal-El, places him into a rocket ship, sets the coordinates for the planet Earth, where he's heard good things, and shoots his child off to the planet Earth. And Kal-El arrives in his rocket ship, lands on the planet Earth, and is found by two human beings, Jonathan and Martha Kent, who adopt him as their child. In the old story, the original story, they're a very old couple. Um, as they've kind of retconned the origin story, they made them a little bit younger over time. Um, but they were definitely uh, an older couple, couldn't have children, very much a, um, a kind of Abraham and Sarah storyline, right? And they adopt this child. And they come to find out right from the get-go in the original story that this child has powers. He's, he's um, you know, got super strength and he develops along the way. Um, originally, he becomes Superboy uh, through some transformation and eventually makes his way to becoming Superman. Well, um, who is this character, Superman? Who is he? Um, what is he telling us about ourselves? What is it that Siegel and Schuster were trying to get across? Um, a lot of the modern interpretations of Superman have leaned into this idea that somehow Superman was originally made to be a Christ figure, um, and that that's what he should be, and that's what he should represent. This film, The Man of Steel, that came out, uh, I guess it was like 2013, that Zack Snyder had done, um, which is uh, one of the most recent Superman films, tried to really lean into this imagery at one point in time, where it has Superman in one particular scene in the cruciform position, right? Uh, trying to express this idea that he is indeed a Christ figure, a, a, a savior of sorts. Um, while that idea has been placed on Superman in recent times, that's not really the idea that was originally there from the beginning. From the beginning, the idea that would lay behind Superman was really a pretty simple idea. Superman is who we want to be. 
um, for two nerdy Jewish kids from Ohio uh, who probably struggled to get girls, um, you know, struggled to uh, look good in the eyes of all of their classmates, they wanted to be Superman. They projected onto the comic pages this idea of what it would be like if we had everything, right? This guy's ripped, he's good looking, he's got strength, he can wow people with his abilities, and ding, 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 he always gets the girl, right? He's got Lois Lane in his sights, and she just falls for him. Well, um, you know, this is what was being communicated through Superman for a long time. This was uh, what really lie behind the character, that Superman is this ideal that we all want to be. That idea of Superman still lingers to this day. Um, behind the character of Superman has become this picture of, of what we strive for as humanity today, what we hope to be as human beings. And Superman plays into this very strongly throughout his comic book series. Um, a lot of the conversation that you hear Superman having, particularly today, leans heavy in this idea that he is a moral model for us, that he is an exemplar for us, that he is the person, if we just work hard enough, we could become like him. Right? So I'm going to give you some quotes of things that were said in a very recent issue of Superman. Um, this one comes from Action Comics 1000. Superman says this, and this is um, not the first time he's saying this. This is a common thread. I truly believe the people of Earth are good and decent. In times of trouble, they rise up and make things right. This is the picture that Superman holds of the human race. People are basically good and decent people. When trouble comes along, they're always going to step up to the plate. They're always going to do the heroic thing. They're always going to be the champion. In other words, they're going to become like me. They're going to do the kinds of things that I would do in any given circumstance. Um, you know, this very much falls into the idea that Nietzsche, the philosopher Nietzsche had, about the ubermensch, the superman. Um, you know, Nietzsche's whole idea about the superman is that there would be one man who could master himself and create his own values, and then he would be the, the ideal man that we would all fall in line behind, right? Um, superman is very much falling into that idea. Uh, superman says this a little bit later on in the same issue of Action Comics 1000. But I want you to remember an old adage what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Staying true to yourself, abiding by the morals and ethics ingrained in you by mom and dad, along with the lessons you'll learn in your life, can pull you through the darkest moments. But even if that's not enough, sometimes pure gumption and willpower are all you need to get you where you need to go and to be with who you want to be with. You hear that? All you need is willpower. All you need is a little backbone, a little gumption, and you can get there, and you can accomplish great things, and you can do all that you want to do. Um, so what we've got in Superman, and, and this is part of the reason why I'm picking him out first, in addition to the fact that Superman is, is you know, the icon and the very first superhero, as it were, um, what we've got in Superman really is a false anthropology. We've got a very high anthropology being laid out, this idea that humankind, and it's not limited to Superman, right? We hear this within our own culture all the time. 
um, we've got this idea that if we just try hard enough, we work hard enough, we put enough effort and backbone into it, we can become a hero. We can become a champion. We can be, um, you know, the ultimate model of good in this world. So this is one thing that comes through comic books. We begin to hear where our own culture is with regard to our anthropology, with regard to where we see ourselves as human beings. Now, I'm gonna contrast that with a different picture because I think what happens is we human beings are quite confused. We like to think that this is a possibility. We like to believe this uh, lie, as it were, that we can just exert a little willpower and try our hardest and become great. At the same time, a lot of us are keenly aware that this is simply not the case. We're keenly aware that there's something wrong, something flawed in humanity, that we're not able to actually reach the heights of a Superman and be heroic in any given moment. Um, so I'm gonna contrast this with two things that have come out. The very first thing I wanna contrast it with is a storyline that, that perhaps some of you are quite familiar with that is called The Watchmen. Uh, the Watchmen was a 12-issue comic series that has since been collected in trade paperback form like this one um, a number of years ago. It came out in 1987. If you have not read The Watchmen, I highly recommend that you do watch it. Uh, do not let your children read it. Um, I, I did an interview with a Christian Canadian magazine about this stuff last week. And, um, and I was talking about the Watchmen in it, and I came in and was talking to my wife about it later, and she said, did you tell them not to let their kids read it? And I said, no. <laughs> so I have to add that little qualifier there. Don't let your kids read this, but you read it. Um, the Watchmen is a wonderful story because the author of The Watchmen, Alan Moore, um, had come to a very, uh, very good picture of the fact that these people that we've always held up in such high regard as superheroes might not be all that they're cracked up to be. We've always put them on a pedestal. We've always modeled these people like the Superman to, uh, to think that they're of great moral character, that they're something to be imitated. What Alan Moore did is he introduced a question into the equation. And the question that Alan Moore introduced is, what if they're not? What if these people are actually a bunch of sickos? What if they're actually a bunch of real human beings with real human problems, real human struggles? And so um, Alan Moore actually set about to do this to the DC Comics line of characters that were known as the Justice Society of America. They were the, um, the golden age superheroes of DC Comics, but DC wouldn't let him do it with them because uh, they didn't want those heroes tarnished. They wanted them still to be held in a good light. So what he actually did is he got um, the Charlie comics line of superheroes from the golden age, from the 1940s. Um, they had you know, basically fallen away and folded up and they were no longer on anybody's radar screen. He took those characters and he gave them new names and sort of added some new aspects to the characters. And, uh, and he created a superhero team known as the Watchmen. And he wrote a story that was set in 1985 about the murder of one of those superheroes, uh, the comedian. That's the name of the character, Edward Blake. 
and um, this whole conspiracy that perhaps lay behind the murder about uh, someone secretly trying to do away with the watchmen, do away with the heroes. All this mixed in with the fact that Richard Nixon um, was never accused in Watergate and, um, and the term limitation to two terms for the US presidency was not a, a real thing. And so Richard Nixon still in 1985 is the president and um, Richard Nixon is now heading the, the nation towards nuclear war. So we've got the threat of nuclear war. We've got these deviant social, uh, deviant superheroes. Um, we've got this murder that's being investigated. And we've got this one character in particular, Dr. Manhattan, who is uh, blue. Um, he's, he's, uh radiates nuclear power and he's naked. Um, not well endowed in the comic books, but the movie version made him well endowed. Um, Dr. Manhattan um, is seen as being a poison and a cancer to everybody so that he leaves. He leaves the planet at a certain time. And I'll talk about that a little bit later because that's something else I want to touch on. But, um, but what the Watchmen exposed in all of this is the fact that in fact, humans might not be all that we think we are. It, it began to introduce an idea of low anthropology into the superhero world to say, hey, maybe these are real people and maybe um, they may have the same struggles and the same problems that we have. So that's the one thing I wanna say about the Watchmen for the moment. A second example of the fact that um, we begin to also hear this message of a lower anthropology comes from the most recent DC movie. And I love this movie so much, I, I feel like I had to talk about it. Shazam. If you have not seen Shazam yet, see Shazam. Uh, it is certainly well worth it. I, I hold this film in high regard. Um, I love several of the lines in this movie um, and, a, and a couple of the key concepts that happen. Um, in the story of Shazam, there is a wizard named Shazam who has all the power of the Greek gods. And what um, this, this wizard Shazam has been surrounded by a council of six others, so it's a council of seven, and the six others have all died, so he's the last of his race, and he needs to find a successor. He needs to find somebody who can carry on his power ahead of him. So for years, years, He's searching for one who is worthy, and he can't find anybody who's worthy of holding on to the power of gods, to holding on to the power of the gods. Well, what happens? Well, um, the seven deadly sins that he is in charge with keeping guard over break loose. They get free, and they begin to threaten the earth. And he's in, desperate situ in a desperate situation now because he needs to find somebody and he can't find somebody worthy. And so what does he do? He calls Billy Batson, a foster child who's been in and out of foster situations, very broken kid, um, you know, hurt kid. And he calls him and uh, brings him into his presence and he, uh, he, he says he's gonna bestow power on him. He's gonna give power to him. Um, and so what does he do? He says, Billy Batson, I choose you. And he gives him his power. I love the sort of, of Christian themes we see here of election, of grace being given. Um, but Billy's not worthy, but Billy gets the power nonetheless. But there's a great line in Shazam where, um, where Freddie Freeman, who's one of his fellow um, foster children who lives in the home with him, says this. 
If you could choose between flight and invisibility, what would you choose? Everyone usually chooses invisibility because they realize that there's really nothing heroic about them. What a great line. When given the choice between flight and invisibility, everyone almost always chooses invisibility because they realize that there's really nothing heroic about them. Contrast that with what Superman is saying. And you see the little inklings of, cr of a crack here that humans grasp the idea that we're not all that we should be. There's nothing heroic about us, that we're broken people, um, that we need something. So I'm building towards something. Excuse me, I need a drink for a moment. The next character I want to talk to you about is really the second superhero, one of my favorite superheroes ever, and that is Batman. How can you not love Batman? What's the story of Batman? Real quick. Bruce Wayne is a wealthy kid whose father is a doctor, whose mother is a philanthropist. His father's an active philanthropist as well. Uh, they have plenty of money from their, their practice and from their family lineage. And so they take this money and they use it to help Gotham City, the place where they reside, to do good for the city. Uh, lo and behold, one night they take Bruce out to see a movie, The Mark of Zorro. Um, while they're making their way out of the movie, they're encountered by a common street thug, um, historically named Joe Chill, not Jack Napier, like Tim Burton's version, but Joe Chill. Um, Joe Chill encounters them in the alley, demands their money. Um, they try to back him off. He panics. He shoots them both, kills them there, leaves Bruce alive. Um, Bruce feels the pain, no doubt, of losing his parents. Um, you know, this perfect world that he lived in with a father and mother of material means is now shattered. Uh, he's left alone with no siblings. Um, his sibling, a sibling gets introduced much, much later, but he's got no siblings. Um, he feels very distant. He's left in the care of the butler, Alfred, uh, who is supposed to raise him and care for him. Bruce in the um, one thread that's kind of run entirely throughout the series of Batman, makes an oath after the death of his parents. And the oath that he makes is an oath that he will never, ever let what happened to him happen to anybody else. What Bruce does is he puts himself under a law. He puts himself under a law that demands that he will act perfectly to ensure that nobody ever experiences the pain and the hurt that he experienced. And this becomes the driving motivator for Batman throughout all of his incarnations over time. Certainly, they distanced Batman from this a little bit in the 1950s and the 1960s, right? Um, if you've ever watched the 1960s Batman show, you know there was very little talk about Bruce being an orphan and, um, and his, his seeking of vengeance on crime. Um, but it's there. It's there nonetheless. It's a part of him. So um, Bruce takes this oath. He puts himself under this law, and it's a law that demands perfection from him. Um, listen to this. This is from one of the most recent issues of Detective Comics, number 999. This is what Bruce says. To honor the oath I took meant striving to be the best I can be. Every moment, every day, my fear is that one night when I need to be stronger, faster, and smarter, I won't be good enough. 
That's what he lives with every day of his life, is a need to be faster, better, and smarter. Every single day, every hour, always working, always driving himself, always pushing harder. Now, what does this lead to with regard to Batman? Well, it leads to increasing darkness. If you follow Batman at all, one thing you will notice about the character of Batman is that he continues to grow progressively darker. The early incarnations of Batman had a little bit of darkness to them, and then Batman lightened up for a while in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s, and then he started to darken up again. And that darkening has continued over quite a long period of time, and it's gotten progressively worse, um, we might say. And I think there's something to be drawn from that. No matter how hard Batman keeps fighting, no matter how hard Batman keeps trying, no matter how hard he keeps pushing himself to be, people keep dying. He is not able to succeed in the very thing that he has committed himself to doing. So for instance, in, um, in Detective Comics 1000, um, they were at the very end of the issue, he's talking about how he's been pushing himself and pushing himself, and so he says, well, you know, this past year, uh, there were only 182 people murdered. Uh, the year before that, it was 114. The year before that, it was 231. You know, he's making some progress. He goes backwards a little bit. No matter how hard he keeps pushing himself, he can't seem to quite get there. All of his attempts to control, which is really what this is all about, right? Batman is seeking to control his world. This is the sinful human condition at work. He wants to be the master of his own domain, the master of his universe. All those efforts that he makes inevitably fail. And he finds himself stuck under the law, and what the law can only ever do is drive to despair, right? It can drive to increasing darkness. That's the thing we hear in the story of Batman. The law drives to ever darker places. It leads to despair apart from Christ, of course. So Batman is not a god. Um, you know, we're very clear about that. In fact, he even admits to this. In, um, in a recent issue of Batman, he was engaged to be married to Catwoman, and Catwoman spurns him, leaves him at the altar. And um, inevitably what happens is, having been left at the altar with little to no explanation for why this all fell apart, Batman goes off, he goes nuts, um, and he beats Mr. Freeze mercilessly over a very simple thing. Um, well, of course, Mr. Freeze gets his day in court, and, uh, and you know Batman's being charged with violence in this, and lo and behold, who gets called on to jury duty that day but Bruce Wayne? And... Bruce Wayne, in the midst of his jury duty, um, has to speak to the rest of the jurors because they're deadlocked. And this is what Bruce Wayne says to the jurors about Batman. He's not perfect. He's just us, but in a leather bat suit. No matter what he does, behind the cape and cow and the bat everything, he's a damn person. And because he's a person, a man, he can err. That's about the most honest statement that he could make about himself. After all his efforts to uh, control, all his efforts to live under this law, at the end of the day, he realizes he's not a god. He can't actually succeed in what he's got. And at the end of the day, he's a damn man, right? That's all he is, is one of us.
So, the law pushes towards more darkness is one thing we can glimpse from the comic book word, one thing that we can hear in it. Um, another example of this comes from a novel, graphic novel, called Batman the Killing Joke. Um, if you've not read this and you're interested, I do recommend it. Again, don't let your kids read this. Um, it's not appropriate for kids. I read this when I was 13 years old, and I told a parishioner that, and the parishioner came over to me and said, your parents let you read that? And, well, they didn't know. <laughs> um, so the killing joke actually tells the story, the origin story of the Joker. Um, the Joker was uh, kind of an originless person for a long time in Batman comics. They didn't really say where he came from. That was actually part of Bob Kane's whole intention with the Joker. He wanted him to be a mysterious figure. He didn't want to lend too much backstory to him. Over time, people decided, well, we want to know a little bit more about this guy. What, you know, where does he come from? What's his motivation and so forth? So the killing joke tells the story of who he is. Um, by the way, I think this is where they're going with the Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie that's coming out, which does look quite good. Um, the story of the Joker, it very quickly, is a story of a guy whose wife is pregnant and who is down and hard on his luck. And unfortunately, um, he can't provide for his family. He tries his hand at being a stand-up comic, but he messes everything up. And um, he can't seem to get anything right, no matter how hard he tries. Uh, what he eventually does, because he can't provide for his family, he can't care for his family in the way that he's set out to do, um, he turns to crime. He turns to a petty crime, falls in with some guys who are just going to rob a place. And inevitably, when he goes to rob the place, he ends up encountering Batman. He ends up falling into a vat of chemicals. He ends up then getting discolored, disfigured, and uh, he goes off his rocker, right? I mean, it's all too much. The Joker is a story that's very similar to Batman. It's very similar in the fact that this law that was hanging over him, you know, the law to, to provide, the law to do, the law to be to his wife and his unborn child isn't fulfilled. And he tries desperately to make it be fulfilled, and he can't get there. And where does it lead? It leads to insanity. It leads to him ultimately breaking as a human being. Um, it's been said in recent times that Batman and the Joker are just two sides of the same coin, and this is abundantly true from what we see here. Both are guys who are just riddled by the law. Um, both are guys who are feeling the despair and the brokenness that the law can bring. So let's not talk about the Joker anymore, and let's not talk about DC Comics anymore. Let's turn to Marvel. And I want to talk about my favorite Marvel superhero, and that is Spider-Man. Um, Spider-Man is a rich field, for theologically speaking. Um, what's the story of Spider-Man? Well, Spider-Man is a kid from Queens. Uh, his parents were spies. We later find that out. They had to leave him in the care of his Aunt May and Uncle Ben. And, um, and after he has left them in, uh, been left in their care, uh, his Uncle Ben and Aunt May dote on him. Um, he's an only child. We'll find out more about his ha having a sister later in the comics. But he's an only child at that time. And, uh, and they dote on him. And, and in doting on him, he, his natural tendencies towards selfishness, the kind of natural tendencies that we all have as sinful human beings, um, gets sort of magnified. It gets brought out to be much bigger. He's a little bit um, on the side where life is about him, right? 
So Uncle Ben tries to teach him a lesson. That lesson is with great power comes great responsibility. Can't all be about you. You've all heard this catchphrase in the Spider-Man movies, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Well, he finally gets his spider powers after getting bitten by a spider. He has the opportunity, while he's um, getting paid for a wrestling match, to stop a criminal who robbed the money that night, the, the payroll that night, and um, he doesn't stop him. Why? Being a selfish kid, he didn't want to get involved. I don't want to be bothered with that. And so the guy who robs him ends up being the very one who later that night goes and breaks into the Parker home and kills his Uncle Ben. So Spider-Man, Peter Parker, now carries this weight, this guilt. He could have done something. He could have stopped it. With great power comes great responsibility, becomes a word of accusation, a word of law against him. Uh, he could have done something and he didn't do it, and now as a result of this, somebody is actually dead. Someone he loves dearly. Um, so he becomes a superhero as a way of self-atoning. This is what he thinks that he's doing as a superhero. He will make up for his failure by saving other people. He will make up for his failure, his sin, by doing good for other people. And so this becomes the catalyst for Spider-Man for, for the early part of his career. Now what happens in Spider-Man stories over and over again is that people keep dying. First, it's his girlfriend, um, Gwen Stacy. Um, the Green Goblin kidnaps her, takes her to the Brooklyn Bridge. In a confrontation, he pushes her off the bridge. Um, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, tries to save her by shooting a web at her legs to catch her. He grabs her legs, but inevitably what happens is the force of the fall mixed with the pullback of the web snaps her neck. She dies. Then his best friend Harry Osborn, who is the Green Goblin's son, becomes addicted to drugs. He can't do anything about that. He can't seem to help him. He can't help the Green Goblin, Norman Osborn, his friend's father, who he finds out is the Green Goblin. And in fact, in a confrontation, he ducks when the Goblin sends a glider at him. They captured this in the Tobey Maguire movie. And, uh, and the glider impales him, kills him. So now he's responsible for the death of Norman Osborn. He's responsible for the death of Gwen Stacy. He's responsible for the death of Uncle Ben. Um, it's death after death after death. With great power comes great responsibilities, an accusing voice that's ringing in his head every single comic book. He can't get out from under it. Well, um, what's up with Spider-Man here? Um, Spider-Man needs absolution. That's the only answer to Spider-Man's problem, right? At the end of the day, Spider-Man needs someone to come and say, I declare to you that all your, your sins are forgiven in Christ's name. That's what he needs. And yet it's not what he gets. He keeps longing for it. He keeps yearning for it. And it's not there. And, um, and we feel these things. You know, I think this is part of what makes Spider-Man such a relatable character. Um, he doesn't only appeal to the inner nerd in all of us. Uh, I had a conversation with someone about this recently who said he, he loved Spider-Man because he was a nerd and Spider-Man was a nerd. I think probably the same thing was true with me um, to, a, to some degree. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, I think what we identify with in Spider-Man a lot is the sense of guilt we carry. It's the sense of guilt that we know we should do and we should be. Um, you know, the law hangs over us all the time, and we're not measuring up to that. We think we can self-atone. We think we can make up for it by trying harder, by being better people, by doing good. 
and, uh, and we don't ever arrive there. How are we doing on time? Anybody know? Okay, a couple minutes. So let me just say a few more words here. Um, I touched on the story of the Watchmen a little bit earlier. Um, one of the aspects that I mentioned to you about the Watchmen story had to do with Dr. Manhattan, the blue gentleman. Um, he, uh, he gets accused of poisoning everybody, being a cancer, um, and, and being a cancer so that he needs to leave. He's actually giving people cancer is what's, what's being claimed, so that he needs to leave the planet Earth. I think one of the things that is often not picked up on in that is um, Alan Moore's uh, perhaps approach to God. Um, you know, later on, Dr. Manhattan actually gets called God in the DC Comics universe. Um, there's a storyline running right now called Doomsday Clock, and Dr. Manhattan is, he refers to himself as God, and uh, others call him God as well. Well, what do a lot of people think? That God, religion, Christianity, is a cancer, something that we would do, be better without, right? Um, at the same time, I think there's a tendency to fear, what if God doesn't show up? What if God's gone, right? Um, that's a big thing, the hidden God uh, um, that we talk about, right? That God, um, God has left the building. He's just left us here, become the God of deism almost, right? Just backed his way out. Um, I think that's a real fear that creeps through that storyline because as you follow the Watchmen storyline, things get ever worse once Dr. Manhattan's gone. Once he's left the planet, now who's going to protect us? Who's going to save us? Who's going to be there for us? And I think that's a real existential question that humans wrestle with, this sense of hiddenness of God, right? That what if God's not there and God's not for us and God doesn't love us? Um, what then? What do we face here? Which leads me to the, the um, last story that I'll talk about, which is the story of Kingdom Come. I showed you um, this cover before, and I definitely recommend that you read this book, um, if for nothing else, because this is one of the most beautifully illustrated books there is. Alex Ross is the painter in this, and Alex Ross is, I think, one of the greatest artists in comic books ever. Um, he's done every cover for my, one of my favorite comic series, Astro City, and he's done Marvels. He's done a, a lot of very good things. This is a, um, a kind of alternative universe storyline um, in which uh, Mark Wade, the author, um, does a pastiche of the book of Revelation. Um, he takes the framework of the book of Revelation and tells a story. It's centered around a pastor named Norman McKay, who gets to have some visions of the world going wrong and the need for salvation for the world, the need for some hope for the world. Uh, Norman McKay, by the way, looks like Robert Capon, if you've ever seen any pictures. I don't think he was modeled after Capon, but he looks like Capon. Um, so, uh, so what happens in this storyline is that the old generation of heroes have retired and there's a new generation of heroes who have become exceedingly dark and brutal. And the leader of this new group of heroes is a, a hero named Magog. Get the biblical reference? Um, Magog has no sort of ethical structure. Uh, he feels that killing is okay. If it's necessary, it's necessary. So he kills the Joker. Joker's a problem, Joker needs to die, he kills the Joker. Well, um, that leads to just a, a storm and a great fear of these heroes now. 
and it drives Superman out of retirement to form a new Justice League. Um, Batman and Wonder Woman are retired as well. And, um, and the heroes come back in an effort to, uh, to try and, and figure this out. And you get three teams of heroes that are operating from different angles. You get Superman's Justice League, Batman's Outsiders, and then you've got Lex Luthor's got the Mankind Liberation Front, um, it, which is made up of some Golden Age superheroes, or Golden Age villains that are, uh, that are seeking their own ends. Well, the big question is, do we, do these heroes, do, does Superman destroy these bad heroes or not? He gets them all in jail, but the question is, should he do away with them? Should he stoop to their level? Um, ultimately, while all of this is going on, these ethical decisions are being brought out, um, three nuclear heads are launched, warheads are launched. And uh, in order to stop the nuclear warheads, somebody has to step into the breach. And I love this part of the story. At the end of the day, the hero who steps into the breach takes the full brunt of the three nuclear warheads is Captain Marvel, a.k.a. Shazam. Um, why? Because he is the only one who is both man and God. Um, he's Billy Batson, and he's endowed with all the powers of God. Um, so he steps in, everything centers on him that kills him, and when it kills him, it frees everybody else. And the new life that springs out of this leads to all the heroes becoming a lot better. Um, peace comes into the world. Batman goes back to being a, uh, what is he? He becomes a healer with a hospital. Um, he reconciles with Red Robin, Dick Grayson, who he's been estranged from. Uh, Wonder Woman becomes the ambassador for superhumanity. Superman restores the destroyed farmlands. He basically becomes a new glorified farmer. That's what he does. Everybody's at peace with one another. We've got some very Christian themes running through this story. So um, the question that comes through Kingdom Come is really this question of when the world starts getting darker, where do we look for hope? Where is it that we're looking for hope? And I love that it, it comes in the form of the God-man, right? Um, we know that to be Jesus Christ, not Shazam. Um, but um, where is that hope? It's in Jesus Christ. Very last thing I'll say, and, and then I'll wrap up, is that there is a thread in comic books, if, you've, if you read any comic books today, that the dead never stay dead. Um, everybody dies in comics, and everybody's resurrected in comics. This all started with Superman back in 1993. Um, I, you know, everybody ran out in 1993 to buy Superman 75, The Death of Superman. This would be a collector's item. And um, now you can find them for like 50 cents in every comics bin um, because they overprinted them and everybody owns one. Um, well, from that moment on, the whole death resurrection idea started to become, uh, it's passe now. I mean, it's just, it's what happens all the time. Um, you're not surprised when a character dies, you know they're going to be resurrected in like 20 issues. So um, you don't feel sad anymore. So it's happened to Robin. Um, it's happened to Superman, as I said. It's happened to Jean Grey, uh, the X-Men. It's happened to Wolverine. It's happened to Barry Allen's The Flash. It's happened to Batman. It's happened to everybody. Um, what's that all about? Well, we all know that we die, right? That's the one thing we can't escape, and comic books make that clear. We do see this picture that death is a real thing. 
But what lies under that? Why the repeated returns from the dead? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we hope there's something else beyond death. We hope that there's life beyond death. We hope there's another word that could be had. Um, so we put this all together, and what comic books give us is a picture of humanity wrestling with very real things that we encounter through the scriptures, that we know to be true through the scriptures, right? We, uh, we recognize that humans wrestle with this question of whether we're bound or free. Um, we know we're bound, we know we're captive, um, yet we try to, try to convince ourselves it's otherwise. Um, we recognize that we're under a law, and that law is driving to darkness, the law is driving to despair. We wrestle with the questions of the hiddenness of God and the fear of abandonment, the, the fact that God is against us. Uh, we wrestle with a search for hope in a dark world. Um, we wrestle with the need for forgiveness, um, the need for atonement to be made for our sins. And we have this hope that death doesn't get the last word. You know, what do the heroes provide for us? They provide little glimpses that perhaps there's someone who can rescue us. Perhaps there's someone who can save us. And the last thing I'll leave you with, there's t-shirts out there now with Jesus, with the DC heroes, and Jesus with the Marvel heroes. And Jesus says, let me tell you how I saved the world. Because that's the one hero we need, right? <laughs>